right, howdy, Austin Stone. My name is Ross Lester, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see you, albeit through a screen for now. I'm pretty sure I speak on behalf of all of the pastors at the Stone when I say I miss seeing you, I miss gathering together with you, I miss just being around each other, sharing a space, sharing a moment in time and experience together of the collision of humanity and divinity coming together in worship that we ordinarily get to experience every week. I grew up in church, and so I've been attending Sunday services every week for 41 years. I will confess that there have been seasons when I have wondered about the necessity and usefulness of regular Sunday gatherings. I mean, brunch looks nice. So does uh, riding a bike with friends. And these are things that I, I would always contemplate as my alternatives on a Sunday. Is a service really a necessary thing? Turns out, It really is, and it isn't just necessary, but it's actually beautiful and wonderful to gather together with God's people, wrapped up together in the flesh of our temporary lives, but reaching together towards the transcendent, the eternal, the heavenly. I'll never look at our gatherings the same way again, and I hope the same is true for you. Over the next four weeks, we've decided to step briefly out of our study in the Gospel of Matthew into a series we have called Times Like These. And here's what we're going to cover over the next four weeks. Today, we're going to ask, how can we be people of faith in times of uncertainty? Next week, we'll ask, how can we be people who fight for faithfulness, for holiness, for godliness in times of temptation. In week three, we'll ask, how can we be people of peace in times that are filled with anxiety? And in the last week, we'll ask, how can we be a people of hope in times that could be prone to despondency? You see, truthfully, none of us really know how to navigate this season well because we haven't done it before. I, I personally have never lived through this sort of worldwide response to anything. And so it feels to me like there's no playbook for it. Uh, A lot of the expectations for and of our lives and what we think they will look like have gone away. I I never thought I'd be a televangelist, and yet here we are. I, I also never thought I would be the principal of a small and slightly dysfunctional homeschooling co-op, but here we are again. We are all being impacted by this pandemic and its resultant isolation to differing degrees and in varying manifestations, but we are all being impacted. Some of us severely, some of us less so. Some who I know are mourning the loss of loved ones as we speak. Some have been sick, others fear getting sick. Many are deeply worried about the potential of financial ruin and how they'll ever get their job back or their business back or their retirement savings back or just a steady income back. Uh, So many are being caught up in cycles um, in difficult places for them to find shelter. Their sheltered in place season doesn't feel like shelter at all, but rather like they're locked in a place of great peril. Some of us feel like we are now stuck away with the very demons we ordinarily leave the house to escape, but now we have nowhere to go. And then some of us are doing just fine, 
adopting, ad adapting to the new rhythms, figuring out new ways of doing life and just doing our best um, to avoid our pantries and not always successfully so. But as Christians, hopefully all of us are fighting for faith in the midst of this season. I had a discussion with a friend this week who isn't a believer and he asked me, well, surely this whole scenario destroys your idea of faith. How could you possibly continue to believe in a good God in the midst of this chaos? Now, he and I had a back and forth conversation that was helpful, I think, but I think he has a misunderstanding of the nature of faith and what it is and what it ought to accomplish. But to be fair to him, this confusion on faith and what it is isn't just restricted to those who don't believe. Even amongst people who do, it is difficult to know what an appropriate response of faith ought to be. I mean, we know if we've read the scriptures that, that the people of God are called to be a people who are marked by faith, that faith pleases God and that he responds to it and that it is impossible to please God without having faith. These are essential truths of Christianity. But how is that faith supposed to manifest in times like these? I watched some debates on Christian Twitter this week on whether it takes more faith to keep away from our gatherings and to let God do his work outside of the usual means that we know how to control and manipulate or whether the most appropriate act of bold faith is to defy city, state, and federal orders and together in large crowds believing solely in God's protection over us. Both positions believed that their position was the faith-filled position. And I watched this back and forth on that medium or on that medium all day. It was like watching a game of faith tennis. For, forgive me for the illustration, but I do really miss sport, um, even tennis, even uh, Twitter tennis, which is how desperate things have become. But here is the problem which was uh, evidenced in those interactions. When you say you have to have faith, you can mean some very different things. We can, be, we can mean that in and amongst the community of faith. We can mean that outside of the community of faith. I mean, even George Michael's saying, you just got to have faith, a mantra that was later picked up by someone who didn't agree with him at all. Fred Durst from Limp Biscuits, who had a very shouty cover of the same song. I don't think for a second that George Michael, Limp Biscuit, and you and I would agree on what that faith would look like, even though we would all agree with the sentiment that we just have to have it. And so friends, in our good desire to grow faith in times like these, we can actually misplace that impulse and land up with an empty and resultingly dangerous outcomes to our misplaced faith. Well, we can put it in the wrong thing. And that's a bad outcome for us all. Some place faith in a particular set of outcomes to circumstances. I've heard some people just saying, it'll all be fine. I say, well, how do you know? Well, I have faith. And because I have faith, it will all be fine. I see people make declarations like this all the time and often in Jesus' name without him ever having made the promise that we choose to cling to. We think we can just speak it into reality as our act of faith. Now, friends, this looks helpful. It looks courageous. It looks faithful from the outside. We might go, oh, that's a person of real faith. Look at them just speaking realities into being. But actually, it can be cruel because, friends, I've read the Bible enough times to understand that we don't control the big outcomes of the universe. God does. 
we ask full of faith, boldly and humbly for God to do things, but God does what God does. He does what glorifies him and what brings us into line with his good purposes. And so the outcomes can't be the place where our faith is placed. It needs to be placed in the God who decides the outcomes. I've been working my way through some Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons that he preached on the book of Habakkuk. Um, He preached these at the end of World War II as the fear of communist advance swept through Britain. The church was very, very nervous and alarmed. And, And he said this, he said, we all tend to prescribe the answers to our prayers. We think that God can come in only one way. But scripture teaches us that God sometimes answers our prayers by allowing things to become much worse before they become better. He may sometimes do the opposite of what we anticipate. He may overwhelm us by confronting us with a Chaldean army. Yet it is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with with God. And so friends, our faith cannot just be in a certain set of circumstances or outcomes because God might do something different. And then where do we find ourselves then? Some people place faith in faith itself. Now, I've seen this a lot in my life as well. It's usually an emotional response that may be excellent, but can also just be hollow optimism or just a group of Enneagram sevens doing what they do. Now that's brilliant um, for them. The world needs lots of that. And I know I can be a bit of an Eeyore character at times, a bit of a pessimist, and we can't all be Eeyores. In fact, all Christians are ultimately called to be optimists, as Kevin Peck brilliantly pointed out to me this week. He said, all Christians have to be eschatological optimists because we know how it ends. And so our long view has to be one of optimism. And I like that and believe that. But that doesn't mean that our faith has to manifest in some sort of vain hoping in short-term outcomes. Sometimes faith is a quiet waiting, a faithful long enduring, a, 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 a stillness, a silence, a willingness to just not move. It doesn't have to always be a chest-bumping, fist-pounding, loudly shouting sort of of declaration. Some people place faith in a fictional version of God. I've seen this a lot as well. People full of faith, but but faith in who? A a God of their own making. We make up a version of God and then have faith that that he will stay within the boundaries that we have created for him. I, I hear this often. I hear people say, well, I just cannot believe in a God who would dot, dot, dot. Uh, that's fine, but it's largely irrelevant as to whether or not God will act according to our constructs and principles, whether or not we manage in our small brains with our small faith to be able to believe that he would. He's not bound by our own ideas of how he has to behave. We can't believe in a God who would dare to operate outside of our parameters. And so we shrink back to a smaller God, a tamer God, a controllable God of our own imagining who is not a God at all. And friends, all of these distortions of faith, they can work in people's lives to an extent and for a season. 
until God crashes them down through situations in which they do not hold, situations like a global pandemic, for instance. What happens then is we see a shifting in people's faith in light of this distortion of what they thought reality had to be. Some, tragically, give in to open and bold faithlessness. When the work of God in the world doesn't seem to compute with the ideas of God that we have, then something has to give. And tragically, for some, this is deconstruction of the very idea of the divine that they had in the first place and results in a walking away from the faith in a public way. Uh, experienced this in my own life with people I love and care for and see much of it around the world today. Many aren't prepared to do that but creep into a silent, functional faithlessness. There are many whose thoughts and practices land up basically being faithless because they're disappointed that God didn't operate in the way that they thought he ought to. They don't articulate a loss of faith. They just don't behave in any sort of faith-displaying areas anymore. And I think many of our churches are filled with people who are walking in this kind of functional atheism. Some resort, as we've said, to another version of God that fits with their own experience. Some slink back into forms of open theism where God exists and is very nice and kind, but he just won't or doesn't or can't intervene in the world he made anymore. Some rush headlong into a view of a distant God of cruel judgment who is um, powerful and who does intervene. He just isn't approachable or kind but people rush into all sorts of misaligned views of faith. How do we avoid this? How can we be a faithful, God-honoring people in times like these? In times when it is difficult to see exactly what God is doing in the world, how can we maintain a vibrant faith in who he is in the midst of of all of it? How do we not retreat in fear? But how do we also not press on in folly? How do we lean in in faith? Well, all of this reminded me of the epistle to the Hebrews where the writer speaks of faith in vivid terms and calls a people who were living under pressure, people who were struggling to discern the hand of God and his work in the times in which they lived, the people who were tempted to slip back into fear and the writer calls them instead to press forward in faith. We're not sure who the writer of the Hebrews is, but look at what he said in Hebrews 10.35 after he had just affirmed them for previously enduring a difficult season of persecution in a faithful way. He now calls them to do it again. Now, their situation is a little bit different from ours. They were, they were experiencing hands-on persecution from the state, and that was starting to close in around them. But, but, but some of what underlies that is the same of us. They were going, how is God working? in the midst of this. There's so much we cannot see. We thought it would be different. We thought he would relieve us from this. We thought he would have come back already. How can we hang on to faith when we have unanswered questions about what he is doing in the world? In that way, we are the same as the recipients of this epistle. Look at what the writer said to them. He said, therefore, because of this, because you've been faithful in the past and because God has faithfully clung to you, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have 
need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's saying to them, keep going, just keep going, keep going. Why? He says, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, look at this. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love this text. The writer does a Bible quote mashup, which is brilliant. It's pretty awesome. He mashes together sections of Isaiah 26, Haggai 2, Habakkuk chapter 2. The gist is this. When times get rough, when it's hard to see what God is doing in the world, the people of God cling to faith, real faith. They don't shrink back. They hang on for dear life while they wait for it to be fully revealed what God was doing all along. Now that's great. But as we've shown, hang on to what? What does real faith look like then? What are they supposed to press into? What is the faith that we're called to have? Well, the writer does not leave them hanging. And so famously in the first verse of chapter 11, he says, this is faith. He says, now faith, this thing that you've got to cling to, don't shrink back from, this is what it is. It's the assurance of things hoped for It's the conviction of things not seen. I love that. It's an assurance of our hope and a conviction of something that we cannot see. It's a wonderful combination, these two words. That word assurance is like the confidence that you have in a firm foundation. You go like, now I can build on because the foundation is firm. That's what that word assurance means. Um, uh, in this season, I've been building a bit of Lego with my son. He doesn't need my help, but he, he seems to enjoy my company and long may that last. And so when some of his structures have been falling apart, we've been going back to the foundations on which he has built. And what we discovered is he's been building these Legos in his bedroom, which has a plush carpeted floor. And as he builds foundations on that spongy, soft carpeted floor, things don't get properly locked into place. And so they fall apart when you move them later. And so we've transferred his building to a table where he can get that stable base laid and then he's sure that every part that he puts on top of that will hold. This is the assurance that the writer speaks of, a firm foundation. That word conviction is like the proof or evidence that you get from a well-reasoned argument. When someone explains something to you and it just makes so much sense and it just all holds together, that is the kind of conviction that the writer is speaking of. And so friends, listen, here's what he's saying. Assurance is what we build our faith on. Conviction is what we build our faith from. We build on assurance. We build from conviction. And those are the things that we need to feed in times like these when we cannot see what God is doing in the world. Okay, but how? Because even the writer here says there's a lot we don't see, right? It's a conviction of something you cannot see. You can't see everything that God is doing. And that will always be the case. And that is exacerbated in a season where it might be difficult to to trace the fingerprints of God. Even now, we're going to need some time to be able to look back on it to figure out how he is working. 
And so how do we build assurance and conviction in the midst of all of this? Well, just four very practical tips for us today. This whole series is going to be very practical, stuff that you can go away and implement straight away. But just four tips today on faith building in a season of mystery. How can we grow assurance to build on? How can we strengthen conviction to build from when we cannot see what we cannot see? First one is this. When we can't see what God is doing, we must remember what God is like. When we cannot see what God is doing, we must remember what God is like. I, I wanted to use a Spurgeon quote, the quote this week that's widely circulated on the internet um, that says, when you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. But I figured out this week that like a lot of things on the internet, it's not true. He never said it. But this is the principle that, that one of the most important things we need to understand when we understand the scriptures and in understanding the God that the scriptures speak of is that we cannot try to interpret what is clear through what is unclear. There's much we cannot see, and so we must go to what we can see. When you try to interpret what is unclear, like the work of God in the world currently, uh, and, you, and then you then interpret the nature of God through that, you get all confused because you're, you're starting from a point of blindness. Just before we move to the U.S., um, as Sue and I decided to have full-on medicals. We're both about to turn 40, and uh, we had some medical insurance in place in South Africa, and so we went for all the checks. We did, we, we did it all, uh, top to bottom. And so we decided that I should go get an eye test because I was approaching 40, and everyone told me it was a steep cliff and you're going to need glasses pretty soon. And, and I went in, and I went to go see the optometrist and sat down to get an eye test. Now, I don't know about you, but when any kind of test scenario rises up for me, I see it as a competition. And so I hopped myself up, I sat down in that chair and I looked through this little machine and she put the big chart on the wall and we started with the big E on, on the chart and we worked our way down and I was gritting my teeth and I was nailing it. Without any lenses in, I could see everything on that chart. And she wasn't saying anything, but I could tell just from her posture, she was impressed. No one had ever scored on this eye test like I was scoring on this eye test and I knew it and we're getting to the bottom line. She was like, no, you don't need to see that. I was like, oh, well, I can. And I was reading them all out and I was pretty confident I was getting them all right. Then she started to flip some lenses in and it made everything super blurry and worse. And I said, well, wait, 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 what are you doing? She said, well, this is how we test. You have to get the wrong thing in order to get the right thing. I said, what kind of science is this? Who diagnoses that way? You've got to give people the wrong thing before they get the right thing. And, and, and so uh, my perfect test score started to disappear because we had the wrong lenses in. And eventually, after adjusting all of them through, discovered that I didn't need any at all. But friends, when you've got those wrong lenses in, you can't see anything. Things that you could before see perfectly clearly, as soon as you put something else in front of your eyes that you can't see clearly through, now you can't see that at all. And you don't know where to look and you don't know which way is up. One of my favorite people in the world, Miss Beth Moore. It's not like we, we're besties. I've met her twice. But she taught me as a principle that in seasons of uncertainty and unknowns, you should make two columns in your journal. What I don't know and what I do know. <laughs> in other words, what I can see clearly and what I cannot see clearly. What do I know about God? This I can see clearly. What do I not know about the circumstances and situations of my life and how God is working? What I cannot 
see clearly. We fill out what we do know with scriptures that are explicit on the nature and character of God. And I'm telling you, when you do that, the other column becomes largely irrelevant. The other column of what we don't know fades into the background. For example, friends, when I get confused about who God is and what he's doing in the world, which happens sometimes, I go time and again to Psalm 103, which quotes from a number of other Old Testament passages. I go back to the simplicity of this all the time when I feel unclear because I don't know what God is up to. Look at what it says. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Friends, I can feel it even now as I recite those ancient words to myself, faith building in my heart. When I remember that, then the rest of everything else can come into focus. Where do you go when you cannot properly see? Do you go to the word revealed of who God is and how he works and choose to view everything else through that? Or do you go through the lack of clarity, the blindness, and then choose to to look at even the things that you do know through those bad and foggy lenses? Friends, one of the clearest ways to do this, one of the best ways to get clarity is to remember the character of God as revealed in the person of Christ. The same writer of the Hebrews was very clear to teach us in a helpful way that we can remember what God is like, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Why? Ultimately, God is like his son. He starts his epistle to the Hebrews by saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. (laughs) And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. When you look at the world, are you confused? Are you wondering, what is God like? Well, friends, God is like his son. And his son has been revealed to us in a magnificent way. Those are the lenses that we need in our eyes to look and see clearly so that the things that we cannot see can come into focus in that season. Okay, when we can't see what God is doing, we must remember what God is like. Secondly, when we can't see what God is doing, we must remember what God has already done. This is what the writer of the Hebrews does. Right after his explanation of what faith is, he takes his readers on a quick tour through the faithfulness of God to his covenant people across generations up until that moment in history. You see, friends, we have very short memories. And the road ahead can get really cloudy when we look forward at what lies down the path without considering the length that we have traveled to get where we are. This is a constant theme in the scriptures. There are hundreds of exhortations to remember 
the work of God in the Bible. Why? We forget. Here briefly are four areas of God's work that we would do well to remember. Remember his work in the world. Just remember it on a cosmic scale. Just what he has done in creation, how he keeps it all working. Even now, we're breathing in and out just as an act of his divine, sovereign grace and wisdom. Friends, when I think of the grandeur and complexity and the wonder of his creation, then my faith is stirred and built up once again. I, like the psalmist, say, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Look at his work in the world. Secondly, look at his work in his people. When you read Hebrews 11, so he sets it up, verse 1, and then he gets into this hall of faith that has been called. And you see all the people that God persevered in there. You go like, oh my goodness, what a God. Samson is in there. Samson is a disaster. But God is faithful towards him. And when I remember all of that, I go, oh, look how faithful he has been across millennia, across generations. When you read church history and you see how he has done great deeds through ordinary sinners, when I think of the things he is doing through us right now, his church across the globe, here and now I see God's work in his people and my faith is built up. Thirdly, we must look at his work in his son in Jesus. Last week we we remembered the work of Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. Friends, when my faith takes a bit of a pounding, I come back to the historical claims and teachings of Jesus Christ because I can't look away from him. They prevail and they hold, and then the rest of it all holds together. Paul says Jesus rose bodily and was seen by 500 eyewitnesses, most who are still available for cross-examination and who are welcome to take questions on that. What was Paul doing? He was saying, go figure it out. This is the claim that Jesus rise from the dead. Is he who he said he is? If he is, all of it holds. If he isn't, none of it does. And so friends, when you're fighting for faith, come again to this humble Galilean, this Jesus. Did he really die? Did he really rise? Did he really ascend? If he did, the rest of it holds. And our faith is built up by looking again at what is clear. And then lastly, we must also look at his work in our own lives. Through through the Old Testament, the people were told to build things called Ebenezer's, little mounds of stones in places where they met with God. And God told them, hey, when I meet with you, build a little monument so that when you come back through here and when your kids come back through here and when your kids' kids come back through here, they'll go, what are these stones about? And you will be able to tell stories of God's faithfulness. Why did he tell them to do that? Because they would forget. They would forget his faithfulness and his kindness and his goodness towards them. When I think of what God has done to save me and keep me and walk with me, I cannot look away. I cannot give in to faithlessness, but I need to remember. I need those Ebenezer stones to remind me of his kindness. All right. You must remember what God is like. We must remember what God has done. This third one's a bit strange. I'm warning you. When we can't see what God is doing, we must honestly assess our alternatives. When we can't see what God is doing, we must honestly assess our alternatives. When we're fighting for faith, we must consider what would a life of faithlessness look like. 
Now, I know this sounds weird, but it's been powerful in my life. We often erode or deconstruct or neglect our own worldview without considering where the road of another worldview might take us. When I was speaking to my unbelieving friend this last weekend, he found my answers on faith and the role of God unsatisfactory. I pointed out to him that he too had unsatisfactory answers around COVID-19, human suffering, and the purpose of the world. When I pointed that out to him, which I thought was a bit of a slam dunk argument, he said, well, at least I know that everything is random and meaningless and that we're alone in all of this. I stopped, (laughs) took a breath, and then asked him, and that makes you feel better? <laughs> that's, a, that's a better thing to be able to hold on to? Friends, in my limitation, I don't know a lot of what is happening in the world. I don't know a lot of what God is doing. But I do know that God loves us, that he won't leave us or forsake us, that he is prepared to participate in suffering with us, that he will bring something beautiful and redemptive out of all of it, and that he will ultimately do away with all the suffering in the world. I'll take that. It makes me eschatologically optimistic to have this worldview to hold on to. What would I have without it? I love the passage in John 6 where Jesus has been drawing a crowd and they're all gathered around him and he's like a rock star. And then he starts to say some really, really hard stuff to them and people start to leave. His disciples, his followers start to drift away and eventually he's just left with the 12 that he began with sitting around them. And he says in verse 67 of John 6, he said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him. I love this answer from Peter. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? What are our alternatives? No one is like you. This to whom shall we go has been a question that has kept me for many years. I can't take my eyes off of Jesus of Nazareth. Who or what? could offer me more hope, more truth, more grace, more love, more mercy. Who? No one. And so when I consider my options, then my faith is built up once again as I once again realize, no, this is the most true thing in the world. And it's captured perfectly in my Savior, my King, Jesus. Last one. When we cannot see, what God is doing. We must and we can ask him for help to hold on in faith. One of my favorite prayers in all of scripture comes from a man who was struggling to see what God could do. Jesus was promising him that he could do more than this guy could possibly dream of, but he was struggling. And Jesus says that anything would be possible for him if he believed in the power of God. And he answers and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's me, most days. And I think that God loves to give the Holy Spirit as a helper to build faith in those who who want to see it built inside of them. Friends, don't drift into faithlessness. Ask the Spirit to help you. He loves to give gifts of faith to those who ask. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, 
He prays for them, this incredible prayer. He says, I pray that according, verse uh, verse, uh, 16, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What would be the result of the strengthening with power through the Holy Spirit? So that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is my prayer for us, that in times like these, we might be a people full of faith with Christ dwelling in our hearts, certain of his love, certain of his kindness, certain of his goodness, clinging to the hope that he's going to come back and make this all right, just like our forebears were who received the epistle written to the Hebrews. A people that when we cannot see what we cannot see, return to the assurance that we have that we can build on and the conviction that we can grow, that we can build from. Friends, I said this would be really practical. And so let me give you some practical homework for this week. How can you grow your assurance and your conviction in God's character and who he is? Maybe you need to memorize that section of Psalm 103. Maybe you need to go back and read the Gospels again and see the character of God on display in the person of Christ. But speak to someone about it. Have someone remind you of God's character, of who he is. How can we remember God's work in the world? We need some shareable Ebenezer's. You need to write down some of the faithfulness of God towards you and then share that with others so that when they stumble upon this mound of stones, they would say, look, a faithful God, even in the midst of a struggling people. Maybe as families or or, or units together or if you're uh, on Zoom with your MC this week, those would be good things to be able to share. Look how faithful God has been to us. Look how faithful God has been to me. Look at his work. Some of you need to soberly assess your alternatives and confess to God that you have none, (laughs) that you have none that are worth pursuing. And so stop the drift and turn afresh to him and run to him in faith. And then all of us could really use God's help. What if every day this week we got up And ask the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh with his presence and with his faith so that Christ might dwell in our hearts. And so that in times like these, we would be a people of faith because the world really needs some people of faith. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you that you have manifested and shown and displayed that kindness for us across millennia. Thank you, God. Thank you that there's no other in whom we could find comfort and kindness and hope in this season. Father, I pray that we would stop looking elsewhere. And thank you, Father, that you help weak strugglers. And so, Lord, I believe, we believe, help our unbelief. We can't see, truth be told, all of the things that you're doing in the world and in the midst of all of this confusion. We can't see it, we can't. 
but we can see what we can see, and that, that is that you are good and kind and just and merciful and gracious and loving, and you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Help us to be people who don't shrink back, but who cling to you in faith and who model that faith to the rest of the world who desperately need to see it. Revive and move of faith in the midst of your people. Father, I pray that you would use this season to take some lukewarm people and stir them into vibrant faith. I pray that you would use this season to take some people who are tired and fatigued and burnt out on religion and stir some fresh belief in them. Father, I pray that you would use this season to take many who have no faith in you and turn them towards faith in you, that they would realize that they don't need to have all of the answers about what you were doing. You have revealed to them who you are and they can turn to you and you will save them. I pray that you would do that even now, even now. Father, awaken faith in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.